morning, church. Glad to see you here this morning. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 5. First, I need to make a clarification. Some of you have heard that I fell down the stairs at home. That's not true. I'm telling everyone that my wife pushed me. (laughs) The fact that she was not home at the time is irrelevant. Some asked me if I bruised my head, and I said, no, that's not the end I fell on. (laughs) My grandkids love to come over to the house and bump down the stairs. I've discovered that at 60, that's not as much fun as at 6. So if I don't make sense today, it's because I fell down, I guess. John chapter 5, verse 9. Any of you that I have not offended in the last few weeks, uh, this may be the one to get you. You might be a legalist if. The subject I want to talk to you about this morning is legalism. You know, it's kind of odd, but I've never met a Christian who admits to being a legalist. I know Christians who will admit to lying, stealing, envy, lust. But no one wants to admit that they're a legalist. Yet to really overcome the problem, we must all admit that we are at times legalistic. The list of regulations that we may impose on others is long, and it is not always clearly defined. People are judged for the version of the Bible they carry, by the way they wear their hair, by the clothes they wear, by whether or not they have tattoos or anything else that doesn't fit within our boundaries of acceptability. We judge people by whether they like to sing contemporary Christian music or they want to sing the old hymns. We make judgments based on how they choose to educate their children. We judge people who raise their hand in service, and for those who do not raise their hands in service. We judge people by what political party they affiliate with, and the list of things that we judge people spirituality on is almost endless. Now, this morning we return to the healing of the man by the pool of Bethsaida. Here, Jesus entered in the midst of a group of hurting people who were waiting by the pool for a healing. Among all those that gathered there that day, Jesus was drawn to one man who had been an invalid for 38 years. In verse number 6, Jesus asked this man a pointed question. He says, do you really want to be healed? And then in verse 8, he commanded him to take up his bed and walk. The Lord healed this man through the spoken word. It's important this morning that in the last part of of verse 9 that we are told, and that day was the Sabbath on which the miracle was performed. The miracle would not have caused any problem except that it was performed on the Sabbath. But as it was, this miracle became a very, very important because it precipitated a great Sabbath controversy. 
I believe that Jesus worked this miracle on the Sabbath on purpose to focus the attention of the religious leaders of that time on the fact that they were missing out on the original purpose of the Sabbath and the fact that he is Lord over the Sabbath. Now, the Old Testament taught that a person should not work on the Sabbath. It is one of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. By Jesus' time, the rabbis had extended this into 39 categories of rules with 1,521 rules altogether. At first, this story seems to be about the Sabbath. But when you really think about it, the issue is not the Sabbath. It's about legalism. The Pharisees are the grandfathers of legalism. And Jesus meets them head on in a a confrontation that turns the tide of official opinion strongly against him. The healed man in our text is intercepted by the religious leaders who inform him that he is breaking the law. Verse number 10 says, The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, For Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Verse 15 says, the man departed and told the Jews later that it was Jesus who had made him whole. Four things this morning. You might be a legalist if, number one, you are more concerned with rules than you are with people. They are not concerned about this man in the least. They do not even acknowledge that he has been healed, let alone rejoice over it. Their only concern is that this man is breaking the rules, their rules. He tells them that it's not his fault that the one who commanded him to get up and walk is the one who also commanded him to carry his bed. Once informed that Jesus is the one who healed the lame man, The Jews ceased to harass the healed man and now fix their attention on Jesus. Verse 16 informs us, For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. John tells us that the religious leaders began to persecute Jesus. An important feature of this miracle is that it began an open conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders that would finally culminate in the crucifixion of our Lord. But this miracle was done on a Sabbath, and it was what gave rise to a demonstration of the rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders. One of the most serious problems facing The Orthodox Christian Church today is the problem of legalism. 
One of the most serious problems facing the church in Paul's day was the problem of legalism. In every age, it is the same. Legalism tears the joy of the Lord from the believer, and with the joy of the Lord goes his power for vital worship and vibrant service. Nothing is left but a cramped, sober, dull, and listless profession. The truth is betrayed, and the glorious name of our Lord becomes a synonym of gloomy killjoy. The Christian, under the law, is a miserable parody of the real thing. If I were to list the five enemies of the church today, legalism, I believe, would be number one. Legalism is a killer. It kills a congregation when a preacher is a legalist. It kills preachers when the congregation are legalists. I enjoyed the story I read about a pastor many years ago who found the roads blocked one Sunday morning because of the weather, and so he was forced to skate on the river to get to church, which he did. When he arrived, the elders of the church were horrified that the preacher had skated on the Lord's Day. After the service, they held a meeting where the pastor explained that it was either skate to church or not go at all. Finally, one of the elders said, well, did you enjoy it? And when the preacher answered no, the board decided it was all right, as long as you don't enjoy it. Christian liberty, by its very definition, is the freedom to enjoy the rights and privileges of being saved, to live in and enjoy the kind of power that only Jesus Christ can bring, to become all that he meant you to be, regardless of how he may lead other people, to know that God is an end of, to know him in an independent and personal way. The fact is, is God is not stamping out little Christians all over the world who look exactly alike and sound exactly alike and teach exactly alike. God is pleased with diversity. That's why he created us different. Legalism is essentially an attitude or a mentality. Legalists put, on, put emphasis on what we should not be or what one should not do. Legalism is so enticing because it promises to provide acceptance from our peers. Legalists do and don't do things because they're the accepted standards of people they want to please and impress, even though they are not outlined in Scripture. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter number 1. I want us to look at the second point. You may be a legalist if you think that everyone that doesn't agree with you, agree with your convictions, is a heretic. Here's the strange thing. Legalism is heresy because it places an artificial 
standard of conduct upon Christians that does not exist in Scripture. But the really ironic aspect of legalism is legalism defines anyone with a different opinion as the one who is a heretic. If you agree with me on manners of personal conviction, then you're all right. But if you hold to a different opinion, then you are wrong and you are dangerous. The problem of legalism faced by the Lord in our text is carried on right into the first century. Paul wrote to this very problem in his letter to the church at Galatia. He wrote I, in verse number 6, chapter 1, verse 6 says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, Then what was preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches another gospel, any other gospel to you, than which you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ." Paul wastes no time in his letter to the Galatians getting to the very heart of the heresy. In verse 6, he says that the true gospel is a gospel of grace. Christ's death on the cross was sufficient payment for sin. His blood was the final payment that freed us from our slavery to sin. It is called being ransomed from slavery, and he paid the price to make us free. What does it take then to have eternal life? It takes faith. No works, no long list of things to do, no required number of attendance at church, no baptism, no giving up, no adding to. It is trusting Jesus Christ alone and his pavement at the cross to cover your sins. You do that and you have eternal life. That's the grace of Christ. Yet almost every cult that you want to look at is a cult of works. Because works appeals to the flesh. They say, you must work if you hope to be saved. And in so doing, seek to add to the finished work of Christ. Many people think, if I could just do something to get into heaven, it would make more sense. All of life, as we know it, is built upon working and getting paid for extra work. Eternal life, then, cannot be free, can it? Oh, but you forgot it isn't free. It wasn't free at all. Christ paid the payment. It cost him his life. From our perspective, it's free. From God's perspective, it had a terrible cost. 
adding anything to the finished work of Christ is heresy. Whether it is an act such as circumcision or baptism or it is the abstaining from certain things in order that one might gain favor with God. All such works are completely without merit. Number three, you might be a legalist if you demand a higher standard of others than you do yourself. The Pharisees, who were the supreme legalists, Jesus had a lot of problems with them. Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 4 in his discussion of the problems that these legalists had said this, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. The Pharisees, with their rules, not only placed a set of rules and regulations on the shoulders of the people that was impossible to keep in order to please God, they also heaped upon them guilt, guilt that they were not able to do those things that they had been commanded. But then they invented interpretations of the law for themselves that allowed them to avoid any real obligation and they could do as they please. Eugene Peterson wrote, there are people who do not want us to be free. They do not want us to be free before God, accepted just as we are by his grace. They don't want us to be free to express our faith originally and creatively in this world. They want to control us. They want to use us for their own purposes. They themselves refuse to live arduously and openly in faith, but huddle together with a few others and try to get a sense of approval by insisting that they all look alike, talk alike, and act alike, thus validating each other's worth. I read of a missionary couple who quit full-time mission work because they encountered legalism on the mission field from the other missionaries that was so petty that they had given up on being career missionaries. The issue, peanut butter. The place that they worked, peanut butter was not available. But this couple happened to love peanut butter, and so they had it shipped to them from the States. The problem was that the other missionaries considered it a mark of spirituality to go without peanut butter. The harassment finally became so bad that it finished them off spiritually. You can laugh at that thought that not eating peanut butter constitutes spirituality. Well, you can laugh at least until I mention whatever is on your list. This is my favorite. A man attended a seminary where they weren't allowed to do anything on Sunday. He saw his wife out hanging laundry on Sunday afternoon, and he turned her in. Can you imagine? 
I bet she was fun to live with for the next few weeks. But he deserved whatever he got. Has our faith been reduced to who does what, when, according to what I think they should do, or is it faith that is firmly based in Scripture? Fourth and finally, you might be a legalist if you feel compelled to fake a certain conduct to gain someone's approval. The heresy of legalism that led to the harassment of the Gentile believers also revealed the hypocrisy that existed within the very highest echelons of the leadership of the church. None other than Peter himself. Look down, if you would, at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. And now when Peter had come to Antioch, he I, that is Paul, withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, that is from the church in Jerusalem, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And when I saw that what they did was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? fact is that Peter, up until this time, had been eating and fellowshipping with Gentile believers. That is, until the Jews from Jerusalem showed up. I love the way that Charles Swindoll tells the story. He says, Peter, I smell ham on your breath. There was a time when you wouldn't eat ham as a part of your hope of salvation. And then, after you trusted Christ, it didn't matter if you ate ham. But now, when the no ham eaters come from Jerusalem, you've gone back to the old kosher ways. But the smell of ham still lingers on your breath. You are most inconsistent. You are compelling Gentile believers to, obs- to observe Jewish law, which can never justify anyone. Peter, by returning to the law, you are undercutting the grace of Christ. Paul <clears throat> rebuked Peter for his hypocrisy, for faking it in front of the Jews. And then turning around and faking it in front of the Gentiles. And so Peter asked, Paul asked Peter a very important question. If you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? This takes us back to the Sabbath controversy that Jesus began by healing on the Sabbath. The truth was that The men were so concerned about the Sabbath were really and truly hypocrites. 
Those who knew the law best not only forbid others from doing harmless things, but they could find legal loopholes that allowed them to do almost anything they wanted to do on the Sabbath. So let me give you three points of application. Number one, it is wrong to give in to legalism. Don't let others set your personal convictions. Those convictions, that is, should come from your personal walk with God. It is not necessary to subject yourself to a group that doesn't respect your convictions and that violates your conscience. Secondly, stop trying to please everyone. Seek the favor of God alone rather than looking to other people for approval, no matter how spiritual they may appear. Paul Turney wrote in his book entitled Guilt and Grace, he said, in all fields, even those in culture and art, other people's judgment exercises a paralyzing effect. Fear of criticism kills spontaneity. It prevents men from showing themselves and expressing themselves freely as they are. Much courage is needed to paint a picture, to write a book, to erect a building designed along new architectural lines, or to formulate any independent opinion or an original idea. Third, live in the truth. Face up to your own legalistic tendencies. We all have them. Your personal convictions are just that, your personal convictions. When will we have the courage then to believe God above everyone else's opinion? Then we will learn to live as free as God has made us. Let's pray. Father, it's still difficult for us to comprehend grace. To understand that there is nothing that we can do to earn it. No matter how much we may try, if we're saved, we're saved because of grace. Because you have paid the penalty for our sins. And we've accepted that payment. If there's one here this morning that has never seen themselves as they truly are, that they can't save themselves, that they are sinners, but that Jesus has already paid the penalty for their sins, and all they need to do is repent of their sins and accept that payment. For those of us who are saved, help us, Lord, not to allow ourselves to come under legalism. And certainly help us never to be legalistic in our approach to others. Help us, Lord, to develop the convictions in our lives that belong to us, that come from you and our personal walk with you. Father, we pray for this time yet ahead, and we want to you to accomplish whatever you see that needs to be done in our lives.
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.